1791, there was an uprising in Haiti. An educated former slave named Duddy Bukman helped sound the call to wipe out the slave-owning whites that plagued his nation. If the name sounds familiar, it's because I've discussed Duddy Bukman before in an episode called Historical Horrors. It's a good story. He's a fascinating dude. But a man like that, who is larger than life in every possible way, has a lot of different stories about him. One of these stories involves a local Haitian legend called Ton Ton Makut. That roughly translates to Uncle Gunny Sack, because this boogeyman would scoop up errant children and stuff them into the burlap sack over his shoulder. He would take them away to an island, never to be seen again. Near the end of 1790, Tonton Makut disappeared. And you might be thinking, well, it's a local legend. How can a legend disappear? You are assuming that Haiti in 1790 was backwards as hell. And this is not the case. They might not have had social media or the internet or texting. What they did have was a whisper stream beyond compare, a nervous system of families and friends that extended from shore to shore. And so news traveled a lot faster than you might anticipate. By Christmas of that year, everyone in Haiti was sure of one thing. Tonton Makut was dead because Duddy Bukman had killed him. This was one of many factors that led to Bukman being such an effective leader during the revolution because his people knew that he was capable of taking hell to the devil himself. Details are sketchy, but the story goes that Duddy consulted with a local voodoo priestess because the devil man, the child snatcher, Tonton Makut, had been haunting his dreams, showing Duddy horrific visions of the hellscape that awaited the Haitian people. Duddy was a Muslim himself, but he had encountered now a problem that the Koran couldn't guide him through. So Bukman went to a woman named Cecile Fatiman, who was the most revered priestess in all of Haiti at that time, and he pleaded with her for help. His Legendary strength and mental acuity weren't enough this time. Cecile agreed to help him, on the condition that in return, Duddy would help her with the revolution that she had been helping to plan. Duddy Bukman and Cecile Fatiman went into an underground chamber. It was the holiest of her sanctuaries, where they locked themselves in for three days. The first two days, they did not sleep. She painted Duddy's body with symbols and runes. She anointed him with oils and blessed him with prayers and beseechments. 
she also prepared his mind for the fight to come. After over 48 hours with no sleep, the big man fell into a long, deep, very unnatural slumber. And when Tonton Makut came to him that night in that dream to taunt and torture him, Duddy was ready. At the end of the third day, he emerged from the basement, looking well-rested, scrubbed clean, and with a new sense of purpose. Some people say that when he emerged, he was carrying an empty gunny sack with him, and others say that sack wasn't empty, but full of brittle old bones. About the only thing that everyone does agree on is that after that night, no one had any more nightmares about Tonton Makut. And no more children went missing. It wasn't until a few months after the death of Duddy Bookman that tales of Uncle Gunny started to return. So, what happened might have been temporary, and hell, maybe it never happened. Maybe this is complete folklore. But it has everything to do with today's story. Everything. Because that day, Duddy Bookman proved that the nightmare people could be hurt. It was the first time that history indicated it might be possible to murder a ghastly one. Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music, monsters, and mayhem. Killers, cannibals, and cults. Fearful fiction and furious fact. Tall tales and terrible truths. This is a scary home companion. Technically, Oregon Cray was a mercenary, but he had always self-identified as a freelance soldier. He wouldn't take just any job. There, there had to be some degree of righteousness to it. On the other hand, He didn't want to glorify his work. He was a hired gun. He was in Afghanistan in late summer 1998 when the nightmares returned. Psychologically speaking, soldiers in the field are prone to having night terrors, but this wasn't that. This was different, and he could feel it was different. It felt like when he had been a young boy. And the dreams, the dreams were always the same. He was on a beach, one that seemed very familiar, although he knew he'd never been there before. It was gray and yellow, sand crunchy like old bone dust. The ocean was ebony black and the sky an endless, empty gunmetal gray. He heard a woman, and the way that she was crying, he could tell that she was in tremendous pain. 
He would look around, he would run back and forth until he saw her. Long black robes and a long black veil. She left no footprints when she walked. Her suffering was endless. Oregon understood with that intuitive assuredness that you only get in dreams that he was the one who needed to help her. The only way for the nightmare to end was by saving this woman. And so he would chase her, but she ran away. And the faster he chased, the further away she got. And the louder and more pained her weeping became. Every night, Oregon would wake up drenched in sweat, clutching his gun to his chest. And he found himself possessed by a growing and profound sense of hopelessness. He would think, if I can't help her, what good am I as a man, as a soldier, as a human being? Maybe I should just... And at that moment, on the first night when he contemplated putting a gun barrel into his own mouth to silence the weeping of that woman, he realized that this was more than just a bad dream. He called his uncle Matthias back on the res. And that was, it's in New York State, so it must have been five in the morning his time. But Uncle Matthias listened quietly and intently to everything his nephew had to say. When Oregon was done, his uncle told him, your wandering spirit has a parasite attached to it. Come home. I can help you. Oregon didn't wait until the next morning. He didn't wait an hour. He grabbed his duffel and he walked right out of the tent stopping only to tell his partner, Manny Cortez, that he was bugging out. Over the years, Oregon Cray had dodged enough bullets and enough trouble to know that you should always serpentine. In this case, he was traveling long distance, so running a serpentine meant that he hitched across the desert to Turkmenistan, then bounced to Bucharest, then Algiers, finally to some friends on the coast of Suriname. From there, he took a boat up to Puerto Rico and then into the States. As he stood in front of his family home at the break of dawn, he saw a familiar face that surprised him. There on the front porch was Manny Cortez, Hey, brother, Manny said. He was still groggy and obviously hungover. At this point, these two men had only known each other for a few weeks. They had been randomly bunked up and partnered for that Afghani campaign. So Oregon was uh, a little confused. What are you doing here, he said. Manny finished the last swallow from a beer can and said, Remember a couple weeks back after that thing in the mountains? I said I had your back. That's what I'm doing here. 
Oregon went into the kitchen and found it empty. The whole house was quiet. Which made sense. The Cray family were well known as being late sleepers. So the prodigal nephew had plenty of time. He slipped on his uncle's well-worn apron and set about making a breakfast feast. And if the smell of the food didn't wake them up, Oregon would be just fine with eating everything himself. He was tired of the shitty desert food. A dozen scrambled eggs, two pounds of bacon, two pounds worth of shredded potatoes, a tray of scratch biscuits. Finally, the family came alive. They started shuffling into the kitchen, barefoot and bleary-eyed. It's Uncle Matthias, the last of the old guard craze, and the man that had kept the family together after Oregon's mother, Doris, had passed. Goyen was not blood to Oregon, but was Matthias's common-law wife, and she had been a rock for this family for over a decade, so blood be damned. Goyen was family to the bone. Her adult daughter Carly was there, so was cousin Flynn, who was still on the outs with his old lady and sleeping on the old broken-down spare-room sofa the family had long christened the doghouse. And last but not least came the youngest member of the Cray family, Matthias's only child, Tannis. Ori, she shouted, and jumped into his arms. Tannis, he said. He, he kissed the top of her head. In days past, he would have spun her around, but holy hell, she was big. Tall and gawky like a knock-kneed foal, spinning her around would have cleared the counters. They ate and spent a little while talking about nothing at all. It felt like home. For a few minutes, Oregon even forgot how tired he was and about the woman waiting for him when he fell asleep. Finally, Uncle Matthias broke the reverie when he said, So, Ori, what's the deal with the Mexican on my porch? Somewhere around noon, Manny woke up, for good this time. He found Matthias sitting on the steps a few feet away, as if he knew Manny was about to wake up. Manny introduced himself, and the older man did likewise. Oregon says you're as good as your word. Manny nodded. Yeah, I don't like giving it, but I refuse to break it. He was thirsty for a little hair of the dog that bit him, and he said, Listen, um, I know this is a dumb question, being a res and all, but there is a liquor store around here, right? Matthias gave him a prison yard stare and slowly shook his head. My family has a long, painful history with alcoholism, so we do not allow any spirits in this house. Nah, I'm just fucking with you. The bar's in the basement. Help yourself. The two men adjourned downstairs for lunchtime beers, over which Matthias schooled Manny as to just how dangerous Oregon's nightmares really were. 
These days, we call the tribe Mohawk. The truth of the matter is that Mohawk was a name given to them by their enemies. It means man-eaters. Traditionally speaking, they called themselves the Kanyankehaka, which translates to people of the flint. For the Cray family, it had always been a little simpler than that. It was a matter of us and them. Call them Mohawk or Kanyankehaka, Maneater or Flint. These were all just words, and words mattered little. What mattered was the blood, the strength of faith and tradition and family, and the old magics and secret ways that were passed down within families. Mohawk beliefs are heavily based on the conflict between good and evil. These were beliefs Matthias took very seriously. More than anyone, he knew what they were dealing with. These weren't just dreams, and this was not just an outsider. It was a spiritual parasite that was feeding on one of his own. One of the oldest forms of evil. Matthias had met things like this before, and in fact, he had met this exact thing before. The long black veil. Back when Oregon was just a boy. The first thing Matthias did was to tell Oregon to stop taking whatever he was taking. It was time to purge and cleanse. No coffee, no cigarettes, no pills, no booze, nothing to help him sleep, nothing to help him wake up. On top of that, heavy exercise and two-a-days in the sweat lodge. It was time for Oregon to get clean inside and out. It was important. Oregon didn't ask why or question anything he was told, no matter how hard it got. And it did get harder. Night over night, it got harder. With nothing to dull his senses or cloud his mind, Oregon found his dreams to be more intense and vivid than ever. The long black veil's cries were more piercing, and they were starting to remind him of his mother's wailing cries, as the cancer had slowly devoured her from within. He was barefoot on this ugly, dead beach, which felt oddly warm against his feet. A pulsing dampness trickling up through the powder of bones and teeth. And there she was. He saw her beautiful agony resplendent. Tears soaking through her glossy black veil turning it shimmering black and green, black and green, like powdered emeralds in oil. He knew that he could not catch her, 
but he could not resist from chasing her all the same. And he was exhausted, more tired and more beleaguered with every passing day. Matthias would simply tell him, Stay the course, nephew. As bad as the nights were, the days were good in equal measure. It had been several years since Oregon had gotten to spend so much time with his baby cousin, Tannis. And every passing day with her became more intensely wonderful as he got to hear more of her thoughts and get to know her not as a cousin or a sister or a kid or a girl, but as this amazing person. She was a smart kid, inquisitive, thirsty to learn more about everything, but especially learn about her family history. On paper, the two of them were cousins, but their relationship had always been more akin to a brother and sister. He'd helped raise her, and she'd never known a life without Ori in it. That's what she had called him when she first learned to talk, was Ori. She stayed with it to this day. Tana saw how he was deteriorating. And she pressed him for details. At this point, Oregon saw no reason to lie to her, no cause to keep her in the dark. I, yeah, maybe she was just a teenager, but Tannis was smarter than most adults that he knew. So he told her everything starting from when he was a kid, after his mother Doris had passed. That's when the long black veil had first come to him. She'd found such easy prey in the grieving boy, and worked upon his feelings of guilt, the guilt that he felt for not being able to help his mother while she lay dying in front of him for months. His uncle Matthias had counseled him at the time, explained that this dream woman was not a woman or a dream. She was a being from somewhere else, somewhere outside of the natural world, who had come to feed on his guilt and his misery. Over the course of a few weeks, Matthias had taught young Oregon about guided dreaming about protecting his wandering spirit from straying too far from the family or his own body. And somehow, although Oregon could never explain how or why, he was sure that Uncle Matthias had found a way to watch over him in the dreamscape. Whatever he did, it worked. The long black veil had not bothered Oregon, Throughout high school, basic training, his tour of duty, or his freelance security work. So why now? He and Tannis put their heads together and pondered it for days. As they rode horses, tended the land, just talked and caught up. They didn't come upon any answers, but... He thought it was nice to just talk anyway. At the same time, Manny and Matthias were spending a lot of time in the basement bar together. 
smoking and drinking and a lot of talking. Both men were big talkers. They had tall tales, both of the true and untrue variety. So between them, there was never a moment of quiet. After a few nights, Matthias pulled Oregon aside before he went to bed. Look, he said. I mean, really look. Study your dream. Don't focus on the woman. Study your surroundings. Chase her like you always do. But this time, when you are about to give up, near the end, when your muscles are about to cramp, go after her with everything you have left. Oregon, they can feel it. When you're there, they can feel everything that you feel. So you need to put all that you have into getting your hands around her neck. This is the last time you'll have the chance, so I need you to make it count. Without question, Oregon did as his uncle asked. That night in his dream, instead of focusing on the woman running away from him, he looked around. On one side was the black water, as always, but for the first time he was noticing more details, like a reef made of sunken boats and crashed planes just offshore. And on the other side, inward, he saw a tall rock spire pointing to the empty heavens above like an atheist's accusatory finger. Around the base of this rock was a honeycomb of caves, horrid figures moving in and out. Oregon chased the woman. He chased the long black veil. And then he lowered his head, he blocked out everything else, and he surged towards her. His run turned into a sprint, his hands turned into fists, his eyes narrowed to tiny slits. More than ever before, he willed himself to grab the hem of her cloak. But it stayed just out of reach. And then the ground beneath him changed and shifted, became riddled with open septic pits filled with body parts, muddy sinkholes of blood and tissue, patches of jagged rocks that stabbed at him like bone blades. And he pushed through it. He pushed through all of it. And when he thought he was close enough, he dove and he grabbed at her. Only to wake up and find Matthias, Tannis, Goyen, and Manny all standing around him, staring. Matthias saw the look on his nephew's face, and he read enough to answer the only question he wanted to ask. Good, he said. He clapped his nephew on the chest. You did real good. Now, we just need to keep you awake for another 48 hours or so really get you right to the fucking edge. And then we're going to finish this thing. Manny said, What's the plan, Unc? Well, it's a two-part plan. First, Oregon is going to catch her. Then, 
he's gonna kill her. sunset on the third day. After over 48 hours with no sleep, Oregon stripped down to his briefs and crawled into the sweat lodge. They were waiting for him. Matthias was in the center of the room, surrounded by a series of small wooden bowls and stone platters, each containing a different kind of herb or leaf or ash or paint. Manny and Tannis were both sitting in the corner, as far out of the way as they could be. Because they weren't a part of this. Not really. They weren't going to be chanting or dancing or handing Matthias shit or helping out directly. But they both had such strong personal connections to Oregon that their life energies were entwined. And with that, their presence might help keep Oregon rooted in the here, in the now. And worse came to worse, maybe they could help pull him out. So basically, they were moral support. Because this whole deal rested solely on the shoulders of Oregon Cray. No one else could fight this fight. On this day, this wasn't a sweat lodge. Today it was a battleground, drenched in smoke. Matthias started laying different herbs and sticks across a small fire inside a ring of old, burnished rocks. And the room quickly filled with heavy, flint-gray smoke, It stung Oregon's eyes. It scratched its way down his throat into his lungs. You remember what I said, Matthias told him. He crawled over and crouched down to start applying the paint to his nephew. Hold back until the time is perfect. Matthias kept on speaking, low and deep in his chest, but... Oregon realized that Matthias was no longer speaking to anybody inside the lodge. Now he was invoking the old magics, using the old words, calling on the powers of light and darkness that lived outside of our world. And as he spoke, he used the paints to adorn his nephew. No symbols, 
or runes or magic words, but tracing his bones and muscles as if calling out the ley lines of the human body, a pale white exoskeleton on Oregon's hands, his feet, his arms, his legs, around his eyes, and across his heart. Oregon heard his uncle's words slowly drifting away now, fading, as if Matthias was walking down a long, damp stone tunnel. Oregon had been sitting cross-legged on the dirt floor, but he felt that pulling away from him. He wasn't rising. The ground was falling. His legs extended, and he reached up over his head and touched a warmer, coarser kind of sand. He grabbed hold and slowly pulled himself up through it onto the beach, the shoreline of the end of days alongside that dead black sea. Under his bare feet, the ground throbbed with that arcane warmth. Oregon clenched his fists. He gripped his toes through the brittle sand. Yes, yes, he felt it. He felt it inside of him. Something was bubbling up. Inside his chest, in his guts, a cold fire. He closed his eyes, and he waited until he heard the call, until he heard the weeping. He heard it, and then he saw her just down the beach. The long black veil looked over her shoulder at him, her face hidden behind that shimmering black and green cloth soaked in tears. And then she started walking away. Why can't you help me? She sobbed. Oregon started to run after her. His muscles throbbed. He could feel his cold fire pulse extending out through every artery and every vein, oozing through his pores like electric sweat and he closed the gap. So she started to move faster. She wasn't running. The long black veil didn't run. It didn't seem like she moved at all. But nonetheless, she was in motion. It was the dream logic that prevailed on the end of days, as if she was hovering just inches off the beach and flying away from her pursuer ever faster. And so Oregon ran faster. He saw her look back at him again. Please hurry, she cried. Suddenly the sand gave way and he was vaulting over shallow trenches filled with moldy bones covered in ugly purple vines and hungry, snapping blossoms. He ran faster, jumping the ditches without ever taking his eyes off of his prey. 
The long black veil began to move faster still, pulling away from him. So he picked up the pace, sidestepping cesspools filled with the screaming dead and geysers spewing plumes of wriggling maggots. Shapes moved in and out of the dead black sea to his right. He saw things rising to the surface, crawling onto shore. He didn't look at them. He didn't dare. He stayed focused. He kept pace, watching the long black veil and avoiding broken bones, rusty scalpels, razor blade tumbleweeds that rolled across this unholy switchback, and he never faltered. He never lost step. Not even as he felt the soles of his feet being torn open, his toenails shredded and torn away. He frothed and drooled as he gasped for breath, and it mixed in with his tears and dripped down onto his chest. The pain, the pain, the long black veil lamented. And then she paused to speak over her shoulder, breathlessly begging, You have to save me, Oregon. And it sounded just like his mother. Oregon Cray had not been able to remember exactly what his mother's voice truly sounded like, not in many years. Not until he heard it coming from the mouth of this thing. Oregon, she said again in Doris's voice. It was then, right then, sparked by that flash of anger from the memory being defiled, that Oregon Cray stopped holding back. The herbs the paints, whatever the hell his uncle was doing, was giving him strength like he had never felt. He had been keeping himself in check so far, as was the plan, waiting until he would normally be tired, until he knew that she would stop to torment him as she always did. And at that moment, he unleashed Oregon sprinted, closing the gap between them in a heartbeat. She was already starting to move away again, but he was leaping. He was on her, and he grabbed her from behind. He could feel her body so frail and skeletal under that black cloak. Stay with me, just for a while longer, she wheezed. Those were the last words his mother had said to him from her deathbed. Just a while longer, son. Oregon let her go. And then he grabbed her head on either side and twisted it full around, and her brittle neck splintered. The woman under the veil gasped, spasmed, and collapsed. 
he found that he was still holding her head. It had come clean off in his hands. And so he raised it and slowly started to peel back that sticky veil. And then, well, then he woke up. Ori, Tanis said. She was crouching next to him in the lodge. Manny and Matthias were both behind her, holding her shoulders as she was holding on to Oregon, as if rooting her down. Ori? she asked again. He nodded. Then he reached out and he embraced her. The cold fire in his limbs sputtered and died. Matthias joined in, turning it into a group hug. Manny, he wandered outside to have a smoke. All that day, and into the night, and then into the following morning, the Cray family and Manny Cortez caroused in the basement bar. Oregon told them the story of what had happened, and then he told it again. Tannis was fascinated by it, actually writing down the details in a little spiral-bound notebook. She wanted to be a writer, she said, or a journalist. Eventually, the beer and the rye took over, and talk turned to Cray family history and to current events, and eventually to pro wrestling stories. All in all, it was a fucking great day. And after that, the long black veil never bothered him again. Until... It was the night of the gunny sack races. After making a right and proper example out of the hierarchy of the gunny men, Oregon Cray, Manny Cortez, and Sadie Jane were on a private plane headed back towards the Florida coast. Oregon sunk into his seat and he felt himself starting to drift off. And he didn't fight it. He didn't have to. Since that night, all those years ago, he hadn't had a bad dream. But this time, it was different. He felt like he was sinking deeper and deeper into his seat until it was pulling him under, choking him, stuffing his mouth full of sand. He jumped to his feet only to find himself on that old, familiar beach, that jagged rock spire in the center of the island, and the twisted, bloated shapes just beneath the surface of the congealed seawater. And the long black veil was there. But she wasn't running. She was standing 
right in front of him. Oregon could feel her eyes on him, even from behind the veil. She was crying, her chest shaking. But then very clearly, she said to him, Find Jack. Thank you for listening to another episode of A Scary Home Companion. Send feedback to the show through social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or send emails directly to Companion at gmail.com. Go to Patreon to support the show. Join Monica, Matt, Joseph, Eric, Carol, Carl, Catherine, Andy, Kevin, and Buck. Cool Kids Tape. Get extra resources, supplemental documents, post-mortem analysis videos, including of this very episode. You can also check out bonuses like Savage, a minisode that tells the backstory of Matthias Cray. If you want more information on the Long Black Veil and where this all may be going, well, sign up for the Patreon first, And then I recommend going back and listening to The Mirror Man. The episode was produced and edited by Jeff Davidson. Music by Narcotic Syntax. Bureaucratique. The Seneca Indians with their funeral chant. And messages. As always, Chelsea Oxendine provided the theme music. Podcast Network.